Good morning, everybody. Welcome. Uh, Glad to have you here. We're going to jump in uh, to our ongoing study here today, looking at the Old Testament and the New. It's going to be a little bit of a different passage than what we've had in some ways. Other ways, uh, it may strike you as being familiar, but uh, indeed, we're going to begin in Deuteronomy, as you see listed there. So I have you turn in your Bible to Deuteronomy. If you don't have a Bible, I would definitely recommend grabbing one off the shelf over here. I can bring you one also, but you're gonna uh, you're gonna feel glad that you have a Bible in hand. I think as we uh, study this together, um, we're gonna start here um, in verse 15. I believe. Um, Let me, while you're getting your Bibles, just give you a little bit of background here. So uh, here we have a a significant list of of different requirements and expectations for the people of Israel. You know, way back in 16, you'll see we're talking about Passover, then we're talking about some festivals. Uh, Chapter 17, we're talking about uh, worshiping other gods, then we're talking about law courts, then we're talking about uh, you know, what it means uh, for the monarchy, that kind of stuff. Uh, chapter 18, we start talking about offerings for priests and Levites. And so when we get to where we're at here today, um, we've just passed through in verses, chapter 18, verses 9 through 13, we passed through a section here talking about uh, some of the pagan practices of the nations surrounding Israel. And as you see here, um, that occult kind of language, you you shouldn't uh, be practicing divination, sorcery, omens, witchcraft, all this list of really bad things. Now we start here, uh, we're going to bump back not to 15, but to verse 14, uh, and we'll jump right in. So the nations you will dispossess, listen to those who practice sorcery or divination. But as for you, and remember, that's the condemnation that just came before this. But as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him, for this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see this great fire anymore, or we will die. Okay, let's have a pause here. You need to know a little bit of your history here. So, uh, the people of Israel have this pattern in the Old Testament where God will come to speak to them. And you know when that happens, there, there's often a big thing that accompanies that, fire or wind or earthquake. When God shows up, big things happen. And the people of Israel are repeatedly afraid of that. And so the way that God deals with this, this happens in Exodus, uh, maybe as the best example. Um, the people see God. Uh, uh, happening on the mountain and they're afraid. And it's at that point that God then sends Moses to be a mediator between the people. And there's this whole section in in Exodus with the idea of uh, Moses's face glowing with God's presence and the people being afraid of that. So, So that theme has existed before. Here, what we have is another variation on that where the prophet is going to stand in between the people and God. The prophet is going to explain, uh, what needs to happen. Uh, because, once again, the people are afraid. So so that's what's happening in verse 16 there. Uh, We move on to verse 17. The Lord said to me, what they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command 
him. I will myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words, that the prophet speaks in my name, but a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I've not commanded, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods is to be put to death. You may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously, so do not be alarmed. Okay, uh, I'm, I'm curious. We'll look at this more holistically before we move on to the New Testament selection here. But I want you to turn your attention specifically here to verse 15. So the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. And I want to ask you, if you are receiving this text, how do you interpret, how do you read the prophet like you? If you were looking for this prophet, what do you think that prophet looks like? What's the best that we could make of a statement like that? Question clear? It's, it's kind of an odd statement. A prophet like you. A prophet like Moses? A, a, a human prophet? Well, what qualifications do you think you're looking for in the future if you're trying to find this prophet? Someone from their own group of people. Okay, inside the circle. Israelite. Yeah. Pro probably practicing Judaism. Yeah. Yeah. Moses is not a military leader. He he has there's a there's a battle where he holds up his hands, but Joshua is the one that we think of as being the one in control of the military. Moses is far more of that in-between religious leader. So when you're thinking a prophet like Moses, what I, what's the pedigree you're looking for? Is he a Levite? Was Moses a Levite? I don't. Does someone know the answer to that? I don't know what tribe. I I should know what tribe Moses was from. I don't know that right offhand. But to your original point, he's certainly in the he's in the Jewish family. Well, the reason I'm asking you to think in this way is because this is the fundamental question that the people of Israel will carry forward. Because imagine with me for a moment, you have this promise in Deuteronomy. Moses says there's going to be a prophet like me. And then you have all of these prophets in the intertestamental period. You have this hundreds of years long period where the people of Israel are in captivity. They're forced out of their homes. Their families are separated. They no longer have their places. They no longer have their worship. They no longer have their language. They have nothing. And so in the midst of that moment, all of the attention, understandably, comes back to this promise. This is the thing that the people of Israel are looking for. Where is the prophet who's like Moses? And it's fascinating because it appears that the religious leaders thought of that in a very literal way. So they thought of the person who would carry them through the Red Sea, the person who would feed them, the person who would be the intermediary with God. And that's exactly the theme that Luke is going to pick up in the book of Acts. The fundamental question to start with here today is what is the prophet 
like me mean? So let's look at Acts chapter 3, verse 17. This is an exact quotation from Deuteronomy. And Luke includes this in his telling. Uh, we're chapter 3 here, so Pentecost just happened literally the chap chapter before. So this is the first sermon ever recorded in the scripture. Um, some beautiful words here. I landed in the book of Luke, not the book of Acts. Here we go. Uh, 317. This is Peter preaching. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days, and you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Okay, so let's, let's enter into this together here. When Peter preaches the first sermon ever preached under the Christian revelation of Jesus Christ, he turns here to Deuteronomy, and he speaks specifically of Moses' promise. What is striking is he says that you and your leaders behaved in ignorance. Did you catch that? That is the most gracious way to describe the people who just killed Jesus. Not malicious, not seeking their own glory, it, it, all the things you might think would be applied, he simply says ignorance. And I think it's fascinating that in this same section, he turns back to Deuteronomy, and he, he starts talking about this idea of the prophet who will be like Moses. Because the ignorance, if you will allow that phrase, was fundamentally, they completely misjudged how this person would be like Moses. They were looking for someone human. They were looking for someone who would stand in between them and God and lead them to deliverance. That they expected, like Moses led them physically through the wilderness, that this person would lead them to a new time and a new era. And we know from this side of Christian revelation, Jesus did not physically do any of that. They were looking over here for Jesus to be like Moses when Peter preaches and says they were looking ignorantly. They were looking in the wrong place and for the wrong signs. Are you, are you all with me? So the fundamental question that's happening here, though this isn't the language that the text used, uh, Peter here is preaching incarnation. What he's saying is that Jesus Christ is God. And that is nothing like Moses, right? That's why he was missed, is that fundamentally Jesus here is a prophet unlike any of the other prophets, including Moses. So there, there's this beautiful kind of connection. On the first level reading, 
when Peter's talking about the, the human prophet here, I think we can understand that idea that Jesus is the one who prophetically proclaims what is true. Uh, that's, the, that's the office of prophet, is a truth teller. But on a deeper level, Peter reads into these words from Moses, and he sees in them a spiritual reality. He's seeing that Moses isn't making a claim that Jesus is going to be the same as Moses, but rather he's going to serve a, a like function that Moses did in an eternal and permanent sense. And the point I want to make with this is sometimes we make the mistake of reading the Bible and we make the same kind of ignorant mistake as the religious leaders. We think to ourselves, well, I'm reading Exodus, and isn't this just the story of the people of Israel's history? It is. That's absolutely true. But we, like they, are tempted sometimes to let our reading stop there and to not live into that text and to allow the Spirit to work on our hearts in that text. Because what Peter sees in Moses' words is not that Jesus is going to be the same as Moses, but he's going to be like Moses, but substantially different. And I think it's fascinating that that's how he reads the Old Testament. It may seem like a small point, but I think it's a substantial one. Are there any thoughts, comments, questions, feedback? It's sort of fascinating to try to compare the two um, as one who was an intercessory for God. I mean, yeah. they both were in that respect, right? Right. Compassion for the people. Right. They had, uh, I was trying to think, uh, uh, what are some other comparisons? I'm just kind of bouncing out of my head, letting that roll off. Uh, but, I mean, obviously there's a huge difference, as you're pointing that out. Right. But I see a huge, uh, a lot of likeness, I think, in, in uh, the two. Right. So... This is a way that we often are uncomfortable reading scripture today, and I think it's largely related to our culture and our own sort of ways of understanding. But when you go to when you go to history class at Spirit Lake High School, and they teach Greek mythology, they teach it as a thing that some people believed and wrote down a long time ago. They, they put it in brackets and they make it historically defined, right? That's fair. We, we teach it as stuff people thought. When the Greeks themselves taught the mythology, they taught it as reality. They taught it as this is the way that it is. This is how you order and give meaning to your life because this God defines chaos and this God defines blessing and this God defines curses. They, they understood that as part of their framework. Right. The point I want to make with that is this, is that at the end of the day, when the Christians, when the earliest Christians looked back to Deuteronomy, they didn't just see it as history. It wasn't just words written down that they should remember. They looked for it to see what revelation would be there. And I think revelation is the right word. The idea that Jesus reveals who God is when they look back to Moses's words, Peter says, whoa. Moses must not have been like me as human, but rather like me as one who is going to be the intermediary, to use your language, Mike, to be the intercessor. In that way, Jesus was like Moses. But Peter sees that as being just half of the story, maybe even a quarter of the story. 
There's way more to Jesus than what anyone thought Moses meant all the way up to that point. That clear? Okay. Well, let's keep pressing on here. We got a little bit more time. I, I think one way to frame this text is reading Jesus as uh, the, the one who supersedes Moses in ways that no one expected. But I think there's another aspect of this text that is also really, really interesting. If you have your Bible there, uh, look in verse 18. My translation uh, translates it this way. I will raise up for them a prophet. Uh, sorry, this is Deuteronomy uh, uh, verse 18 here. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites. And I, I want to emphasize the fellow Israelites. The idea there being that this prophet is going to come from the people. He's going to be in the Jewish circle. Then you turn here to the book of Acts. I find this really, really striking. Uh, verse 23 here of chapter 3. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. And then verse 25. Are you, uh, and you are heirs of the prophets. And then you keep going there. Through your offspring, all peoples of the earth will be blessed. And then you keep going into verse 26. He sent his servant to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. This is, I think, a fascinating way that he is beginning to already tease out the difference of communities. So Moses was sent to the Israelites, right? And Jesus, too, is sent to the Israelites. But there's already this problem that's been presented. Because what about the ignorance of those religious leaders, right? The ones who crucified Jesus. Peter's already making a distinction between those who see Jesus' revelation and those who are ignorant. Let's, uh, let's step back here and tease this out a little bit. We all are used to this distinction between Jew and Gentile. And fundamentally in Acts, that's one of the biggest questions of the entire book is how does the church move from being a predominantly Jewish religion to being encompassing of the Gentiles? And in fact, if you wanted to, you could draw a line right here. And somewhere in the middle of Acts, that entire story changes. You, you have Peter in the council and you have the... Uh, Cornelius's house, and you have this moment where suddenly everything past that line is about the Gentile expansion of the church. But we, as Gentiles ourselves, might forget the entire first half of the book, which is related to the spreading of the gospel within the Jewish community. And this is what's really interesting. I think Deuteronomy here is, is essentially framed within a community-defining narrative. This is what it means. If you are in Deuteronomy 18, it means that you will be a person of Israel if you follow these rules, if you do these things, if you don't worship these gods, or in the case of this, if you listen to the prophet who God sends to you, then you will be inside the nation, the people of Israel. You'll be inside God's blessing. But here's the thing. Peter's now standing post-crucifixion, post-resurrection, post-ascension. And he's essentially condemning those standing there. How can you look at the revelation of Jesus Christ, which has been confirmed by his resurrection and his ascension? How can you do that and you still be ignorant? 
How can you still be in the circle of Judaism if you see who Jesus is and you don't see the prophet that he has been? Because his actions have proven who he is. So a text that might on its surface just seem like it's a sermon about, hey, you should consider Christianity very seriously. I think it's actually a crossroads moment for Judaism because Peter is essentially asking, who do you believe? Do you believe the ignorant leaders who are telling you that the like Moses is going to be a human who's going to lead you through the wilderness? Or do you believe Jesus who speaks the word of God, who died, was resurrected and ascended and will therefore be the one who calls you into the Christian community? And and that, I think, is a really interesting turn because here Peter is looking back to Moses's words to begin to define what it means to be Jesus's people. And that's a really, really interesting turn. And quite frankly, we as a church don't quite know what to do with that because what about the stuff that came right before this, right, in Deuteronomy? The stuff about don't worship uh, like the pagans worship. Don't don't do witchcraft. Don't do these things. Uh, It's fascinating because as Peter's reading the Old Testament here, he sees this as being a bridge into the what it means to be the people of God, the people of Jesus today. And uh, we probably just see that to be like a footnote in the text as we're reading along. Yes, of the mic? <laughs> yes, that's good. My curiosity. I'm thinking as I'm sitting here today, we have this wonderful book in front of us. We have this, this incredible book that is put together for us. And it leads us to the Lord. What did they have? I mean, what do these folks have? Right. I mean, they have a prophet. Right. Is that it? Right. I mean, is that it? Religious leaders yet? Uh, right. Nothing written, right? Right. All oral. It's right. all that way. It's received that way. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think it even goes one step deeper than that. They... They not only don't have the scriptures that we call the New Testament in front of them, but I think they're also they're wrestling with what is reality. Because the guy who's standing here today was the guy who watched Jesus be crucified a couple weeks, 40 week that uh, you know, 40 days, 50, 60 days earlier, right? At, that is a remarkable transformation. And we we know that word conversion, but maybe we're a little too acclimated to it. Maybe for us, that idea of conversion is related to like, I sinned a lot and now I don't sin a lot. But for these individuals, for Peter, what he's calling this crowd to this day is not think a little differently or stop drinking so much or swearing so much. That, that's not what he's calling them to. He's calling them to revisit what they've always thought they knew and allow it all to be changed. So you were waiting for this prophet. Stop. You missed him. You missed him. In fact, you were part of the killing him. But allow me to turn you back to what Moses said. Because maybe if we look a little closer, we missed what Moses meant. Right? That is conversion. That's the 90 
or a 180 degree turn. That that's the moment in which Peter is calling people to say everything you thought you knew is now in question because of. And once again, the word I wanted to leave you with today, this is nowhere in either of these texts. And, and I'm throwing this out there. So just bear that in mind. <laughs> but I think that fundamentally what Peter's talking about here as he talks about Jesus, is that idea of revelation. It's the idea that Jesus reveals something that no one saw before uh, his existence. And I I just can't get out of my my head. Sort of the catchphrase for today is this word, like. Because Jesus is like Moses, except in the way that he's entirely God, and therefore not like Moses at all. And everyone interpreted like to be that he's going to be a guy like Moses. And we do that, I think, this this is the point where I turn a tiny bit to sermon. I, I think that Peter's reading of scripture here turns to be incredibly practical to say that we should be the people, when we read scripture, to be more and more like Jesus. We shouldn't read scripture and get caught in putting scripture in its spot historically, right? Like we should allow ourselves humbly to see more of Jesus than less. And I think he's calling people here to a really, really interesting and probably strange task in some ways to revisit everything that they thought they knew about who Jesus was and who what they thought Moses meant and to see that all of that gets turned on its head because Jesus is something they didn't expect, which is why they killed him. And Moses meant something that they didn't see coming. And and that is a kind of faith practice that I think we would all do well to practice in our own reading. What if you too were surprised when you read scripture, including the New Testament? What if you expected to come to a writing of Paul or to a, a passage in, in uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John? And what if you expected God invited maybe even, God, would you please show me something of Jesus today that I would have never seen before. Because that's exactly what Peter is doing in Deuteronomy. He's seeing something that they just didn't see before because they hadn't seen the light and revelation of who Jesus Christ was yet. Some remarkable things happened to Peter. And think about Peter and his denial of Christ. I mean, right up yeah, right. Right at the end. Yeah. Right. You know? Uh, I don't know the guy. I don't even know who it was. And right. all of a sudden he has all of this he has all of this strength. Is that the Holy Spirit? I mean, is that what came upon Peter? Is right. that what did it? I don't know. I mean I'm I'm asking, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. What would it take for you and I to stand before the our kinsmen? But what would it take for us to stand before a church like First Pres and to tell people you've all misunderstood? I was with the guy who you hung on the cross, and I'm telling you, he's changed reality forever. You would have to be pretty darn certain, I would think. I would. I'm, I mean, I'd be with Thomas probably. Like, Jesus, can I, I need to touch you. Peter here is making a brash claim. May I remind you? <laughs> Remember in Deuteronomy, the end of that text, what's supposed to happen to the prophet who prophesies wrongly? They're supposed to be killed. So by that metric, by the way, when Jesus stands in front, I, I was also going to work this in today, but uh, I didn't. In the beginning of Luke, 
You might remember when Jesus goes to his home church and he reads Isaiah, he says, today in your sight, these words have been fulfilled. The people were rightly executing the punishment meted out by scripture. You realize that, like, yes, the crowd was wrong, but they were right in their interpretation. Like they actually understood what Jesus was saying and they were doing the thing they were supposed to do to the prophet who claimed divine right that they didn't have. They were going to throw him off the cliff and take his life. And I think what's really, what's just really fascinating here is Peter standing in front of the people and he's making a claim about who Jesus is. And there's no ambiguity about that claim. We all thought he was like Moses, but it turns out the like was different than we thought. And we are now people of the resurrection and ascension. And this is really critical. Look at the end of this section here. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you for your wicked ways. This is beautiful. Luke is a genius. Peter is a genius. Luke is great for recording it. This idea first to you anticipates that it's going to come second to who? The Gentiles. Luke, Peter, in the first sermon, this has got to be the Holy Spirit, mind. Because in the first sermon, he has somehow intuited a thing that's not even happened in the story yet. And this idea of Cornelius's house and the Jerusalem council and what do we do with these Gentiles, right? The spirit of God is descending upon them. None of that's happened yet. And he's saying first to the Jews, which gives us the idea that next there's the Gentiles. And that is, once again, I think where this is a cross point for the Jewish community. So they have been given first this revelation to bless you for the idea of turning from your wicked ways. But if you don't turn, you're part of this community of ignorance. You're with the religious leaders, the people who hung him on the cross. That's now your crew. Or you're the people who are willing to turn. You're the people who are willing to allow your imagination to be transformed. You're the people who stand in the light of revelation. Once again, use that word. And if that's the case, then it's come first to you. But then for the sake of later to be shared to the Gentiles. And you know, if you know your book of uh, Romans, how vexed Paul was by the fact that the Jews were given the gospel first and they rejected it. That for Paul was, I, I think if you look at his life and his teaching, that was the most vexing theological question. If these are the people of the covenant, I mean, we had this all the way back in Deuteronomy, the idea of the generations of Abraham, right? Like if you're the people who God promised to be faithful to, how do you not see the savior when he's literally crucified, resurrected and ascends in front of you? How do you miss that? And, and Paul later answers, if you know Romans, he answers that by saying, well, God sent Jesus first to the Jews so that then the Gentiles might be saved so that the Jews might see the Gentiles being saved and through jealousy then come back into the fold, which I think is, you know, it, that's a sign of Paul's genius. But once again, we're, we're not there yet. We're just at the point where Peter's at the crux of this conversion moment saying it's first come to you. And the question that comes to you, Jews who are gathered here this day, is are you on Jesus's revelation side or are you on the other side? Are you going to read it in light of who he is or read it in light of what we used to think? And that was the question that people responded to that day. 
And I believe, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe at the end of that day it was 5,000 people added to the church. Um, it's an amazing, I mean, if any preacher had 5,000 people respond with gratitude to the gospel, that would be, that'd be a good day. They wanted a warrior. They wanted a warrior. They didn't want a king in our sense. No. They wanted a warrior. They wanted somebody to lead the insurrection against the Romans. And, uh, Jesus didn't fit that mold, did he? We do too. Right? I mean, uh, fundamentally, I, 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 won't, I won't labor this too long. If you're in a Presbyterian church, you will... I'm not going to say never because I've not been in every Presbyterian church in the world. You're you're almost never going to see Jesus hanging on a cross in one of our sanctuaries ever. If you're in a Catholic church, you will almost exclusively see Jesus hanging on the cross. Right. The point I want to make in that is the 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 downside of our tradition. And there's a lot of historical reasons why it is this way. But the downside of the Reformed tradition is we forget the humiliation of the man on the cross. We forget that that is the man who we are following. And to your point, my, I think when you have an empty cross, it's easy to imagine Jesus being whatever you want him to be. When I was growing up, the, the church that I was part of imagined Jesus to be wealthy and a teacher of how you can get wealthy. I like that Jesus most days. That's a pretty great Jesus. But that's not the Jesus on the cross. And I'm not suggesting we should have crucifixes in our sanctuary. So I want to make that 100% clear. But the upside of having that in your imagination is the reminder that what Peter is calling people here today is not obvious. It is to us now on this side of faith, right? But to the people gathered that day, they were fundamentally being asked by Peter to say, well, do we take the thing that we all learned in Sunday school and unlearn it? Or do we just say that this guy is crazy? And I think if we're going to be humble, we could see how they got to the side of saying, many of them, he's crazy. And I think there's something instrumental in that. Last words, thoughts. This was a little, um, this was a little more theological, philosophical than than our following conversation will be. So thanks for being good sports about this one. Um, but I hope there's something in there that uh, was challenging and encouraging. Thanks for being here, everybody. Thanks, Michael.